Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Dead Punnett Society. And in case uh, you can't make out that beautiful song playing in the background, it's our boy, Stevie Wonder. That's Happy Birthday by the late, great Stevie Wonder. Um, if you didn't know it, the, the apparently the birthday song is is copywritten, copywrote, copyrighted. Um, and we weren't able to use it. I'm terrified of... Um, of the lawyers, but Stevie, our man has uh, passed big ups, shout outs. And uh, I figured it was safe to use it. So shout out to Bernie Sanders on his 79th birthday. Everybody uh, sing along. Happy birthday. Uh, 79 candles. That's a lot. Uh, Bernie gave an interview on, for, what was it, Brianna? The New York Times, where he was asked his, his sign, his rising moon. I think actually it's Mars is in retrograde. Don't don't at me and don't quote me on that. But what was Bernie's response? I don't think this was a New York Times interview, but uh, I think at one point he was interviewed by a fellow Virgo uh, who asked if he knew something about his suns or moons or whatever. And uh, he just flat out said no. So um, I think he's probably like, you know, one of the many reasons why he's my hero is that he's one of the last men to not know anything about astrology. Listen, listen, Diana, can, can, can I call you Diana? Diana, listen, uh, I don't know anything about astrology. Uh, I do know that, however. Okay, that's all I got anyway. Yeah. So, big big shout yeah. out to, to Gramps today on the big seven. Yeah, no, he, uh, and, and of course, in the New York Times interview, let's, let's never, ever forget that. He, um, uh, he told the New York Times editorial board that journalists uh, didn't like him because he didn't do what he described as bullshit, like calling them on their birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't call people on their birthdays, okay? Uh, my Bernie's getting there. You know, it's a fucking shame he, uh, he didn't get the nomination. I feel like after year yeah, that's, two. That's the main reason why. Probably likely. After year, you know, I, was, I, have a, I had a good coach, our, our boy Dan Marins over there at HuffPo. He gave me the scoop. This uh, Southern Gentile uh, Marin's gave gave me a little uh, some pointers. But anyway, shouts out to Gramps uh, on the cusp of his uh, 80th birthday. Hard to believe. If anybody out there is under the age of uh, 25 and would like to donate their bone marrow, uh, please contact <laughs> our revolution or somebody. Uh, we got to keep that man alive a little bit longer. On today's show, we've got a really great interview coming up. Uh, we're going to be joined by Jared Abbott. He's been on the show before talking about a party of a new type, possibilities of building a socialist party with the structures that we have in front of us today. Uh, he wrote a really fascinating piece for Jack and talking about two strategies for building the socialist movement. And we're going to break those down. But we're going to ask uh, and wonder to ourselves, which one is the best? Uh, is this a false dichotomy? How do we move forward in this era of uh, seeming defeat and yet so many possibilities? So that's going to be coming up later on the A side and into the B side. But before we get there, we have uh, a, so a series of new segments that we're going to be bringing to you guys on these A sides. Uh, each of us has selected a couple of segments we're going to bring to you on a regular basis. This week, you're going to be hearing from Brianna, the shock doctor. Uh, my uh, anti-essentialist anonymous report. And of course, Ben is going to tell us what he's been up to writing furiously uh, for Jacobin and uh, the other six outlets that he's a regular contributor to. 
let's start with the shock doctor. What do you got for us today from the world of the shock doctrine? <laughs> well, full disclaimer, I'm not actually a medical doctor. So if you have medical challenges, please do not take my advice. So you're not going to diagnose Ben's rash is what, what, what you're saying. Or, or even prescribe electroshock therapy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe the latter I feel like a lot of people could use. Um, yeah. um, well, so the reason that we're calling this segment the shock doctor or, uh, is, you know, of course, after Naomi Klein's 2007 book, Shock Doctrine, where she talks about how, you know, neoliberal free marketers use and exploit national crises like disasters or public health crises to um, kind of jam through neoliberal policy. And we've seen this throughout the coronavirus crisis. In particular, Trump, the Trump administration has been carving away at essentially all of its regulatory agencies, while everyone else is too busy putting out fires, in this case, literally. So I've been kind of following with my eyes peeled the way that uh, the Trump administration has relaxed a lot of rules and regulations of the Environmental Protection Agency. So, you know, uh, you know, the New York Times has this like interactive graphic that shows the 100 rollbacks that have been made uh, on the EPA throughout the crisis. And in particular, last week, the EPA relaxed its rules limiting toxic waste from coal plants uh, entering the water supply. So we're bound to have another flint uh, somewhere soon, likely because of that rollback. And what was also interesting is that just about an hour ago, Bernie Sanders tweeted that the Senate Republican Stimulus Relief Bill just released today provides $161 million in corporate welfare to the coal industry. Uh, So you can really see how Trump and the Republicans are trying to uh, curry favor with an industry that's been dying and, you know, clearly hand over money to the industry executives. Meanwhile, they staunchly oppose the 2000 a month cash transfers. So never let a good crisis go to waste. Right. I mean, this is where the Republican Party seems to excel against their Democratic Party adversaries and like never letting a good crisis go to waste in terms of like bending the class struggle in their favor every last fucking iota. Right. Yeah. And it's particularly crazy now because of all the wildfires that are being experienced in California. Governor Newsom declared several counties in a state of emergency. So that state is literally like on fire now. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so that and then also just in terms of education, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, pretty immediately after the pandemic hit, told Glenn Beck that the pandemic was an opportunity to look very seriously at the fact that K-12 education has been static and stuck. And so what she ended up doing was using the CARES Act to siphon off money to private schools. And yesterday, a federal judge declared it illegal because it was just so obviously (laughs) um, a violation of the CARES Act. Uh, But we're kind of seeing uh, the ways in which they're just trying to jam through deregulation, privatize public goods. So that's the shock, shock doctrine of our time. It's astonishing. Again, I just have to repeat what I said a moment ago. Like the Republicans never let a crisis go to waste, whereas our Democratic, uh, their Democratic Party adversaries are so busy wringing their hands and trying to win like the discursive, you know, culture war uh, that they even when they have the opportunity to strike, they never do. 
unless of course it's for their their donor class you know <laughs> let's not be like let's not hold up obviously as you know like let's not hold up the republicans as, as like um exclusive ghouls trying to privatize and uh, erect public education but uh uh the devos clan really takes it to like raises it to an art form you might say wait a minute just, hold on just just i'm getting a word from our producer uh we have a special report from uh, the birthday boy himself if i'm not mistaken uh just a moment. Bernie Sanders has a special message for all of you. Look, I don't tolerate bullshit terribly well. And I come from a different background than a lot of other people who run the country. I'm not good at backslapping. I'm not good at pleasantries. If you have your birthday, I'm not going to call you up to congratulate you so you love me and you write nice things about me. That's not what I do. Never have. And I, and I, you know, I, just, I, I take that as a little bit of a criticism, self-criticism. I've been amazed at how many people respond to... Happy birthday. Oh, Bernie, thanks so much for calling. You know, it works. It's just not my style. Um, You know, I try to stay focused on the important issues facing working families in this country, and I fight for them. I mean, Jesus, what what can you even say to that? I mean, the man is, he's a mensch. Anyway, all right, I just had to share that message uh, from the birthday boy himself. Don't call him. I don't think he's going to take it too nicely. (laughs) Why are you calling? Oh, we're not to be called on my birthday. No, that that was such a beautiful interview. Like he was just like one and a half steps away from from just telling them. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, you you people, you're you're assholes. You you always lie, right? I I, I mean, what am I saying? Anything we don't all know? Come on, like you like I I don't think he understood why. Uh, his handlers wanted him to go through the exercise of talking to the New York Times editorial board. <laughs> like, but like he clearly went into that knowing that there was zero chance that he was going to get their endorsement. And, you know, he's just going to have some fun with it. Going through the motions, you know, I mean, you might as well, right? Like the, the New York Times is not going to endorse him. Who they endorse again? So two real oh, winners, oh, if good. I'm not mistaken. They, two real they, winners. They endorsed uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and also, mm-hmm. God, what's her name? Uh, I'm literally, the, 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 Amy Klobuchar, yeah. Amy, Amy Staple Thrower. Uh, Stapler Thrower. Which is, which is awesome, because like... You ever caught a swing line on the side of the head? Jesus, that, that would <laughs> fuck up your day. If, if I, like, I have to imagine that if I were a Warren supporter, like, that would have just pissed me off, because it's like, you know... The, like literally the message you're sending is yeah no warren or you know or whatever like like <laughs> any like anyone who's a woman it's all the same fine, the best whatever, part is know? that like <laughs> even that ident like that that like thin narrow like um like pathetic identity marker wasn't enough to like get either one of them the vice president nod either no right? no it wasn't and not only that but i mean like amy klobuchar i mean I don't know if she actually, like, she got, like, she got endorsed by the New York Times, and she got, what, like, 3% of the vote nationally less? I mean, you got to love it. It's almost like they're, they've absolutely given up any, like, any, you know, obligation or responsibility to, like, try to pick a winner, to try to, like, read the pulse, right? Like, read the political pulse of America and, like, you know, be plugged into it and, and be influential and be the paper of record. That's That's their competitor. But, right, like... You know, it's just, we're not doing that anymore. We're just playing fucking identity games at this point. Yeah, and they're just not and pretending. to the PMC class that we that, that is the bulk of our readership. The entirety of our yeah. readership, let's be real. 
I'm just surprised that like they didn't spare a little bit more of a thought for wait a second do we want to make it this obvious that the New York Times endorsement does not matter at all in 2020? They, they absolutely like just marginalize themselves and their efforts. But it's just like it's a mask off moment where like, again, like, I mean, this is like what we're coming up against in 2020 general election. November is like the political class in the United States. I mean, by, by that, I mean, the liberal political class um, has completely given up any any kind of like. um what was it uh, we talked about with uh, Christian Parenti last week, the, the notion of uh, Hamilton as like homo publicus, right? Any kind of like notion of like, how, yeah, granted, yes, we have our class interests. They are not yours, i.e. not working class, but we have our class interests. We are uh, upwardly mobile, high, you know, highly educated PMC types. Perhaps we don't own yachts. We didn't maybe even go to the Ivies, although most of their writers did, let's be honest, except for a few token state schoolers out there. Uh, but we make an attempt to like read the political pulse of, of America and plug into it, if not generate it right <laughs> with our stories, they've, they've completely like seeded that responsibility, which, you know, uh, that's kind of a bullshit thing to do. We all know the kind of the notion of the liberal public uh, sphere, the public good is a like in, in, insanely limited way of understanding politics, but like it's better than nothing, isn't it? They've just ceded that territory entirely to uh, uh, something that resembles, you know, um, like some discursive culture war uh, nonsensical game. Um, anyway, these motherfuckers. That's what like you guys are talking about. The New York Times is on the side of science. It's on the side of truth. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're 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 definitely on the side of of. Uh, of telling Trump that he's unreasonable and, and like, you know, how dare this. you, sir? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. I'll back onto, onto the PMC uh, identity grifter report. Here's my segment for this week. Uh, it's the anti-essentialist anonymous. Uh, hello. I just want to start off by saying, hello, my name is Adam. Um, and I, I am an anti-essentialist. <clears throat> you are. Hello, Adam. <laughs> I don't feel welcome. All right, we're going to work on that in subsequent weeks. Uh, yes. Uh, anyway, so uh, in the news today, how can we not talk about Jessica Krug? Uh, you know, I didn't want for all of you out there who are like waiting for the DPS report on Jessica Krug, uh, I, a.k.a. Jess La Bombera, um, a.k.a. the self-canceled, a.k.a. who the fuck knows at this point. She's lived many lives, uh, both in person and, and, and online. Uh, she is a tenured... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, associate professor of history at uh, GW in Washington, a fairly esteemed uh, private institution. Churns out uh, many of our, you know, elected officials, many of the people in the civil service, and so on. She has outed herself as a so it turns out like a, a Jewish woman, uh, thoroughly Jewish, who has portrayed herself as Hispanic, as Afro, as Afro Caribbean, or some mixture thereof for the past couple of decades, both online and in her personal life and, and elsewhere. Um, she published a self-cancellation in, uh, on Medium, which is one of the like most difficult things to read that's come out in recent times. It's hard to know if it's like satire, if it's serious. But what do we make of this? Ben, you've been kind of studying this stuff like really closely. Like, What were your first thoughts when something came out that was like far more like parody worthy 
than than anything we've seen on this terrain. Yeah. I mean, honestly, well, okay, my first thought was, oh, I can't believe nobody called her bluff this entire time. You watch the video. Uh, I mean, Brianna looks more Afro-Caribbean than this woman does. Uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's, yeah. it's a stretch, right? Let's, let's put yeah. it that way. Another post said it was a, he's, he's an African-American man who encountered her like at a conference or something, if I'm not mistaken, or online where she called him out or something and questioned his blackness. She said, like, come on, like, I have a lot of mixed friends. Like, it doesn't take someone with, like, 50 close mixed friends to know that this sister is just a tanned Jewish woman from Brooklyn, right? Like, uh, it, I mean, yeah, it's astonishing how this grift could have played out as long as it did. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, it was such an over-the-top, like, like, it it's the way, like, if you watch old videos of her in character, it's like something that you would have expected to be, like, a, an actor playing, like, a sassy, like, black Latino woman in, like, some 1980s Saturday Night Live skit that, like, right. everybody who was involved with is kind of embarrassed about now because yeah, it yeah. seems a little racist, you know, when you replay it in 2020. Uh, so so I'm amazed that she got away with it. But then I guess the second thing uh, is that there's something bizarre about the reaction to all of this that everybody's in the business of, like, policing like racial membership that like, you know, that, that, that we're all this interested in, uh, in, in who counts as genuinely being what, and don't get me wrong. I have like no sympathy whatsoever for this. Like, I mean, this is uh, the fact that she was doing stuff. Like, you know, She's like, obviously like, sick. Like, let's be clear about yeah, that. But like, yeah. this is what we've been saying all along is that like, there's so much that, that passes for like, like, the left, uh, which is just kind of like, um, like demonstrably how we, how shall I say, Brianna, please cancel me and or adjust what I'm about to say here as the uh, registered clinician on the show. Let's just say maladjusted to the realities of, of today. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think this is where Adolf's writings on Dolezal, which we talked about a couple episodes back are so, perceptive uh, because there are certain types of enacting of cultural authenticity that are permitted that, uh, you know, even like within our social categories of race, like, and so, I mean, I guess it's, it's just kind of interesting when there are these moments, these acute moments where people make a kind of quality or a quantitative to qualitative shift where it's like, that's just not okay. Because, you know, within a particular like cultural or racial category, people can really take on markers of authenticity without any questioning. And I think that's the thing that's really interesting that both of you are talking about, which is people didn't question it. And it's because it's a type of like ontological category that by its nature can't be questioned. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it's like on the one hand, should we pull a, an Adolf here and, and give her a little bit of like grace and just suggest that, yeah, sure. Race is and all the rest of it. Now, ethnicity is not necessarily as socially constructed as race. Like you actually do have to have parents that are designated in under the social construct as like, you know, 
Afro-Caribbean or whatever, right? In order to call yourself that. I mean, that's, it's a little, I mean, those things are, everything's socially constructed, but I guess there's a little more, the tangibility of that is a little bit harder to kind of uh, conceptualize as, as porous as something as racial identity. Yeah, um, I mean, I, it's all. I mean, I it's, don't know. It's, it's, it's a mix. It, it also, I'm trying to. It, I'm trying it all to seems pretty, pretty porous to me. Yeah, uh, and and it's all like okay. I, there are also you know ethnic and quasi-ethnic you know identities that uh, that that you are allowed to to like migrate over to right no like no you, like you can you can. Uh, you know, like if it had been the other way around, right? You know, then she would have been okay because you can convert to Judaism, right? Uh, you, yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, like you got to ask three times. But. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but like, but the, but the Dolezals dolls and Krugs can't ask any number of times. You know, like they yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. But what I was getting and, at and, is like, and, and I, and I, I was ahead, kind sorry. of like, like I'm, I'm like, like, like the like in Krug's case because she was like being like do weird things like belligerently calling out other people exactly about, like you know that's not the, really being black right. whatever and that's what like, i was I'm getting lot, at right i'm a lot less sympathetic exactly like exactly. dole is all like i was always like pretty like hey i mean like is she like really deeply identifies with this ultimately meaningless category right then like and, and, and she's not hurting anyone in fact as, as adolf points out in his essay her her fixation with this led her to supporting you know struggles for racial justice. So she's carrying you know, water, right? I mean, why yeah, not? Yeah, yeah, so, do so it? It's it's not a. Um, so I mean, like I don't, you know, I, I think that like anger towards towards Dolezal feels a little bit more like just sort of pure enforcement right. of border, enforcement of boundaries, yeah. whereas anger towards Krug. There's a lot of enforcement of boundaries in it, and to an extent that I even find a little creepy. Like you know, like like we're all in the business of, you know, doing some woke version of like 1930s race scientists trying to decide who counts as what, and yeah. you know who's not, you know who's not allowed to call themselves what, you know, and oh, this person says they're a gentile, but really, right, you know. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there's also part of it that's like, yeah, this is like also this incredibly weird, offensive, over the top you were doing and what's wrong with you yeah so here's let's get to the core of the anti-essentialist anonymous uh report for for this week which is that obviously it's absurd on the face of it i'm yeah i don't know how i mean she's obviously like kind of a despicable actor she's sick let's be clear about that i think but but that is something that's been normalized and kind of um made been rendered the status quo on, on some sectors of the online left as we all know um and a really sad but also like it has tangibly awful and toxic results that we can't easily forgive <laughs> despite the the clear uh Ill, whatever maladjusted natures of the personalities who per- perpetrate this stuff um you can't read her her quote apology her self-cancellation without coming to the conclusion this person is is mal it, minimally maladjusted i'm trying to be woke as fuck here brianna am i am i, am I toeing that line um because we certainly don't want to uh we certainly don't want to uh, malign anyone who has legitimate um, uh, mental illnesses. But, but at the same time, let's talk about this as an indictment of liberal left academia, because that's what's happening here, right? Like how many stages did she have to get through? How many hoops did she have to jump through? How many hurdles did she have to cross to get to where she is today? How many people had to co-sign this performance, 
And I'm not talking even necessarily just La Bombera. I'm talking about her academic performance. And I want to, I want to talk about something right now and, and share with you guys some audio that's per, that's particularly disturbing before we move on to our interview with Jared Abbott here in just a moment. This was taken from a conference. It showed up on YouTube. It was from a couple of years ago. You know, she wrote a book. I can't even remember the name of it. This is bad reporting on my part. It was something like, you know, insurgent identities or, you know, um, some other like academic speak for something that's supposed to stand in the place for like an actual political analysis, but it ends up so hand wavy and, and uh, ridiculous that it's hard to say exactly what the fuck is going on. So let's let's listen to 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 Bombera break down a, a really infamous murder case in New York City and a little background on this. Uh, she's talking about the murder of Lissandro Guzman Feliz. Uh, Guzman Feliz was was hacked to death with by a machete wielding band of, of of basically gang members, gang bangers, who uh, were part of a gang, and she's going to uh, d- detail part of a gang that came out of Rikers. Um, so, Lissandro Guzman was revealed to have been uh, a part of a, a youth wing of the NYPD. He wanted to be a cop, and you're going to hear. Jessica Krug, i.e. Um, Jess La Bombera, uh, give her analysis of this heinous murder of Lissandro Guzman Felice. Uh, let's check this out. And here I'm thinking about um, how many people in this room are familiar with um, Leandro Guzman Felice. It's a 15-year-old boy uh, who was murdered in the Bronx last year. Um, so if you're in New York, you probably heard a lot about this. Um <clears throat> And the narrative around it is that he was an innocent kid who was mistaken for a bad kid, right? He was a kid who was um, hacked apart with machetes in front of a bodega in the Bronx. Um, and the idea is that he was mistaken for someone else um, by Trinitarios, right, who yeah, are a Dominican gang um, that comes out of Rikers, mm-hmm. as most of the radical politics of New York City has done for many, many years, Um But the part of the story that gets emphasized in different ways is that he was an explorer, right? Which is a program that the NYPD has to bring youth in um, to eventually work for them. And so when I think about this politics of silence that I'm talking about in the archives, right, and how silence can be a really radical presence historically, I think it's a radical presence today. Um, When people talk about snitches get stitches, Right. Or when we think about um, a history of anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa and necklacing. Right. Um, And that kind of violence towards people who are collaborating or who are working against uh, their communities. We have to consider a radical moment in 2018 in which people are using machetes to hack apart a 15 year old boy who's working with the police. The way the story about his innocence and the inherent violence of the people who hacked him apart become the narrative we tell. About, about how the loss of innocence is the story we mourn. And it's so much more difficult to understand what kind of freedom could we achieve by being willing to confront those within the community who are working against the interests of the community as a whole at the end of a machete. Um, so- what kind of freedom could we achieve if we hacked to death with machetes? The miners... Uh, who are, uh, you know, um, plucky enough to want to work at the NYPD, one of the only public service jobs that can afford someone a reasonably okay livelihood along with a fucking pension. This is like faux adventurist, like bullshit academic radicalism has passed for like 
radical politics for too fucking long. And it and, and it's high time for it to be exposed. And I don't want this this uh Jess LaBombera story to go down as a possibly mentally ill individual who's like outing herself in this kind of comical story that a lot of I've seen a lot of socialists, some of whom have actually been on this show, some of whom are friends of mine, kind of say, Oh, geez, I can't wait to hear like say the bellows take on this. Like, here's just another story that's going to be blown out of proportion by the anti-essentialists. And of course, the bellows has a very different character than it did a while ago. But right, the, the implication is like, you know, we class only socialists are going to take this up and be like, aha, here's another case where this woman was doing this thing. But like, they're missing a much deeper point by sort of writing this off as, as just a, a sort of a, like a non-newsworthy case. Yeah. Well, and, and, if, and like the whole fixation on how she committed the, the ultimate crime of uh, misrepresenting, you know, her, uh, her racial group, uh, like really like misses the, well, okay, first of all, there's been a lot of weird faux naivete about like why somebody might have done this and what sort of incentives there might have been. But like also, hey, let's say for the sake of argument that she really did come from the exact family tree that she claimed to. Would that make anything she said in that clip less insane? Like she, she like, like, like if, uh, if an academic who actually did come from a, you know, Afro-Caribbean, you know, combined with whatever she said, you know, background uh, had said that it was like, good um you know good praxis to uh hack up 15 year olds with machetes because they were part of some after school club that was set up by the new york police department uh like hey maybe this might be a time to reflect on whether everybody should just nod along when something like that is said uh or or not challenge it because you have to practice eternal epistemic deference to whatever who claims somebody who claims some identity category has said, because I guess if you are going to, you know, practice that, then now you're allowed to disagree with it. But like, maybe you could have asked some questions about that all along. It's just utterly vacuous, like political non-comment, faux political non-commentary. How's that for a turn of a phrase utterly vacuous faux political non-commentary coming from these pmc academics who have staked out their claim as the authentic voice uh, of a of a category that turns out not to be exactly um defensible uh, and, and of course they're belonging to this uh, fantastical category turns out not to be exactly defensible either the whole thing just kind of falls to pieces and all i have to say is thank god for the birthday boy Bernie Sanders and this fucking insurgent social democratic socialist movement that has set the political scene of a light despite its you know current setbacks uh, that has rendered people like Jessica Krug, I, a.k.a. Jess LaBombera, like a, a relatively marginal voice in, you know, political in the political discourse. Like, thank God that we don't have to rely on these like academic hacks to define uh, socialism and uh, militant political action. Um, and so to talk about that very thing, we are joined at present by Jared Abbott, as promised. He has written 
a really important piece, kind of staking out positions. Of course, as a as as a as a as a generative experiment, you might say. Piece appeared in Jacobin a couple couple weeks ago. It's called "The Two Paths of Democratic Socialism: Coalition and Confrontation." We're going to break that down. Talk about how those two paths are distinct. Talk about how they overlap, and and hopefully, uh, you know, fill out some of this, you know, this sorely needed strategic orientation, you know, debate that, that's going to have to take place if we're going to get anywhere in the coming months. Jared Abbott is a, a writer, a frequent contributor to Jacobin. He has co, uh, co-teamed, teamed up rather with uh, Dustin Westella, recent guest of, of Jacobin, to write a really important piece on a party of a new type, how to build a socialist party given the structures and the politics that we have today. Jared is also a member of DSA and uh, hell of a guy. Jared, thanks for joining us on DPS. Hey, how's it going, Adam? Good to see you. Thanks for coming back. Uh, this is a really important piece. Um, as you mentioned, let's start off by talking about the impetus of this piece. You're such a sharp commentator in terms of like, you know, I put you on a pedestal with like just a handful of others. Dustin Costello, of course, being one of them, your co-author, your uh, oft co-author, um, and, and a handful of others who really seem to be able to put their finger on the pulse of what's happening right now, where you're able to see things and, and sort of uh, start to discern the outlines of the gaps, the silences before the rest of us. <laughs> uh, you can see far into the future in that sense. What, what, uh, what prompted this, this particular piece? Well, I mean, thanks for all that. I don't know how true it is, but um, I think that for me, the impetus was basically that it seems like on the far left, you might say there's been way too much discussion of sort of the first principle questions of what you might say you know, Trotsky's electoral strategy, which is to say the fundamental question must be what's our, you know, should we stay with the Democratic Party? Should we break with the Democratic Party? What's the class nature of the Democratic Party? Which are, you know, especially the latter one is a really important question. But I felt like there was an echo chamber, which, I mean, that's a dramatic understatement, actually. And that the people that were actually making the sharpest statements about left electoral, uh, you know, strategy were people that were like, you know, outside the DSA world. I mean, not not entirely, but mostly they were sort of outside the Jacobin world. Again, not entirely, but a lot of them. People like Eric Levitz, uh, you know, people uh, sort of like really, really sharp, like left liberal um, thinkers, like some of the strategists from the Working Families Party, like Walid Shahid, uh, people mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, even like a guy like Sean McKelvey, who I disagree with, you know, on, on, on many, 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 many things. I, mean, I don't know him personally, but his writings. Uh, has made some really sharp arguments about the theory of the case for like left progressive organizing based on empirical facts, right? You just outed right, yourself. Kind of, You've never been to Sean McElwee's uh, parties in Brooklyn. You're just not a happening dude, Jared. I'm sorry. I, well, I don't. I, I don't want to admit it anyway. Uh, no, of course not. <laughs> um, not because I wouldn't be interested, and in, I just don't live in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, I was impressed by some of these folks that were basically. Uh, you know, putting arguments out there, uh, critiquing Sanders, critiquing our electoral uh, perspective of sort of a more confrontational approach to the Democratic Party and, you know, thought we needed to engage with their arguments more seriously and thought that basically our, you know, sort of knee-jerk way of addressing, you know, some of the electoral approaches from other wings of U.S. progressivism is a kind of like, you know, just absolute and unabiding faith in the ultimate 
capacity of sort of disillusioned working class people to be riled up by Medicare for all. And while I definitely still believe there's a hell of a lot of potential uh, in that basic premise of, of standardism, I think that now is the time to sort of step back and take stock of, um, you know, what is the actual evidence that we have that a kind of, you know, insurgent confrontational style, you know, Sanders, you know, building a, you know, a new kind of electoral infrastructure that takes on the Democratic Party directly. What kind of evidence do we have that that's actually possible? And what are our responses to some of the most cutting and incisive critiques of the smartest critics that we have? And it turns out that there's not a lot of great uh, responses out there. Um, and vice versa, there's not a lot of great direct responses to some of the strongest critiques from our side to some of the most important weaknesses of the sort of what you, what I will call in this piece, the sort of uh, coalitional strategy. Um, and so that's basically the impetus behind the piece. Yeah, largely because both sides, as you indicate in your piece, and I've, been, I've lamented on this show many, many times, this, both sides aren't really talking to each other. Not, right, not exactly. in a meaningful way. We're not, they're not adversaries. Eric Levitz is a good, solid guy. He's been on DPS. I look forward to having him back again. He's been in contact with, you know, in, in communication with, with Jacobin types and people like yourself on Twitter almost every day. But there's very, very little sustained debate. And the way that you frame this debate uh, as, as one between co- coalition and confrontation, I think it's going to be very generative, hopefully, in, in, having, in having that, uh, that discussion. You know, Jared, one of the things that I really liked about your piece, it's kind of uh, an obvious point, but that you just name that the Justice Democrat strategy is not necessarily our strategy and our theory of change and our theory of who our base is. Um, And I think that that's important because like while Bernie was running, uh, there really was much more kind of symbiosis between the Justice Democrats and DSA uh, but as you rightfully say, the confrontational approach that a lot of socialists uh, and people on the left have advocated for looks a little bit different. So let's just kind of lay out the schema that you provide in in the piece. So what are those yeah. two strategies? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these are not, um, like I say in the piece, uh, mutually exclusive. And I think Adam already, you know, sort of throw that out there as well. And they're also pretty stylized. So there's a lot of cases where, you know, Things are a lot more complicated in the real world. But basically, uh, the idea is that um, to take like the archetypes of what you might call the two broad approaches out there. Um, on the one hand, you have uh, the dominant approach, uh, which is much, much, much more popular and prevalent among progressives and even socialists, which is what I call the coalitional approach. And that doesn't mean when I say coalitional, I mean a coalition that we should or should not be making with the Democratic Party establishment on tactical grounds. I'm not talking about coalition with other progressive groups or other Democratic socialists. I think that's obviously a necessary condition for any kind of successful left electoral organizing. Um, And so in conversations with some people about this piece, that's been a bit of a confusion. So the coalition piece is basically, you know, in order to uh, win majority legislative support for left of center politics, so that we could get anything that we want to get done in the U.S. Congress and in state houses around the country, we need to get to 50 plus one, essentially. And in order to do that, uh, the, the progressive wing of the party is simply not powerful enough to make it happen on its own. And maybe we could get, you know, 
20%, of the vote, uh, you know, in Democratic Party primaries, as we saw, you know, this year. But in order to actually win governing majorities, we are basically a junior partner in a broader uh, Democratic coalition with, you know, the Pelosi, Jeffries, Schumer wing, uh, dominant wing of the party, right? And we need to see them as our allies, even though, you know, on the margins and even in some important cases, you know, we're going to take on some of the scions of the Democratic establishment, like the jo- Joe Crowley AOC being a great example of that. At the same time, we're going to be careful about the ways in which we primary people and the extent to which we do it. And even more importantly than that, when we're actually in government, we're going to be careful to build pragmatic coalitions with the rest of the Democratic Party and try not to alienate them too much, because alienating them uh, basically means that our legislative agenda gets put on the back burner, means that we don't get committee appointment chips, means that our influence is really, really limited. So the progressive theory of power here is essentially that, okay, we're a minority group within the party, but you know, there's a lot of historical examples where having that strong progressive minority has put important issues, you know, ranging from union rights to civil rights to women's rights and a whole host of other important uh, progressive causes on the congressional agenda, such that when the uh, political headwinds change and the mainstream of the party sees that they can capitalize politically from championing some of those causes, the block of progressives in the party is is there to push them and prod them along um, to the extent that they can. But basically, we're the junior partner. You know, we can only get what we want done if we're able to convince the rest of the party that what we want them to do is actually in their electoral interest. Right. So that's the coalition strategy. That's basically the way the progressive politics in this country and in most countries is done most of the time. Uh, The confrontational approach, on the other hand, basically comes from a much more sort of what you might call populist, um, I think, in a good way, um, perspective, where the idea is that we're going to. Again, sometimes, obviously, uh, we are all going to see the Republicans as, as worse than uh, everybody else uh, legislatively. So we're going to need to build coalitions with Democrats from the establishment uh, under certain circumstances. Uh, and, you know, we understand how politics works such that, you know, when we're weaker politically or electorally than our opponents, you know, we have to make compromises. But that said, the broader orientation is we think that we can basically capitalize on the decreasing legitimacy of the de- mainstream of the Democratic Party among a growing body of uh, working class people in this country, particularly people that are hardly voters or people that don't vote, you know, sort of disaffected, disillusioned working class people. And that basically we can build a new constituency of people that are not just outside the elected official uh, cohort in the United States, but also outside the voter, the electorate of active voters right now and build a new coalition that basically is premised on the idea of the Democrats have screwed you over. They've thrown you under the bus. They haven't delivered on anything that they've promised for, you know, since the 1960s. And um, we need a new party and we need to throw the bums out basically. Right. And in order to do that, we have to build a confrontational rhetoric uh, that challenges the Democratic Party establishment that builds a strong identity around uh, sort of social democratic, uh, you know, labor-based platform. Uh, in this case, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a platform like that, but in our case, it would be that kind of a platform. And we want to use the animosity and the sort of distrust that a lot of people have of the Democratic Party establishment to build that new coalition. Now, in the United States, 
this is something that's never really been successful at the national level. Uh, we've had a state level examples of things like this happening, uh, not for a long time, but uh, you know, the greatest examples are the Farmer Labor Party in, in, in Minnesota and the late in the teens and early 20s, and also the Nonpartisan League, which existed in a few states, but most famously took over the legislature and basically the entire congressional delegation and governorship of the state of North Dakota in the span of like two years. It basically came from nothing to be the dominant political force in the state pretty quickly. And so basically, they didn't have to play ball with the mainstream of the, in this case, the Republican Party in those states in the early uh, 20th century, because they could build a strong enough coalition to actually be the new number one party, right? So they took a major gamble and said, we're not going to, we're going to play hardball with these guys. We're going to build a new electoral coalition constituency to take over as the new number one party. And in other countries around the world, this kind of approach has happened and been successful especially when you have a case where you have a couple of dominant political parties that basically gain majority or, you know, oftentimes very like 80, 90 percent of the vote share consistently for a couple periods in time. And then some economic crisis happens or some major legitimacy crisis happens and they lose, you know, the support really, really quickly. And then an outsider party can come in and basically gain prestige and gain, you know, power by just totally, uh, posing themselves as the opposition force to those previously dominant parties. So I'm thinking of places like Latin America, uh, where this sort of approach has happened uh, many times, um, and also in Europe and in other parts of the world. Um, so that's basically the dichotomy. Um, and there's a lot of caveats, but that's sort of the, the two most sort of archetypal ways in which you know we could imagine progressives sort of taking over or at least influencing mainstream politics in a sustained and powerful way. Right. Yeah. You, you, you know, that this is, this is admittedly a schematic presentation. It's a stylized presentation. I want to be really clear about that because I don't want to get any messages. Uh, unless you're a patron in that case, patrons can, you got, you can, guys can berate us however you want as always. Um, but, but I don't want to get any messages from listeners, uh, suggesting that we're being overly simplistic about this or like, you know, it, it, it can be both. And, um, all the rest of it, the memes of like, why not both? Uh, as, as Adolf likes to mention when he comes on the show. Um, but, but the question is like, you know, um, the question I have for you in this presentation is like, you're making a really interesting assumption, which I think is equally gener generative, which in the, in the trans sort of um, transnational um, context that you're the comparative sort of way that you're, you've envisioned this, um, you're using parliamentary systems as a direct comparison between our own, which in, in a sense is it produces a kind of um, um, like a, a, a much more complex way of assessing the Democratic Party coalition than is typically um, allowed by, by mainstream uh, political commentators. Can, can you say a little bit about how you envision the Democratic Party as this kind of much more complex block of interests in political and economic actors because you know you're talking about latin america they've got labor parties they have workers parties they have other kind of uh um fractions of parties that come together to form minority coalitions and majority coalitions of uh, the most obvious example for the anglophone uh audience out there is of course the labor party joining hands with the lib dems at times and not uh how do you conceptualize the democratic party in that on, on those terms Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think actually the I mean, Latin America is, it, you know, has like mainly presidential systems, but they often have like multi-party systems. So it's right. a little bit 
it's it's not exactly like the U.S., but there are a couple of cases, like in the case of, and I'm not trying to compare the U.S. to Venezuela in the 1990s at all, but, you know, that was a case where you had a stable two-party system hmm. for about, you know, 40 years before, you know, the populist party uh, takes over and comes to power. So there are some pretty similar parallels with respect to the institutional makeup of the party system. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the Democratic Party, I mean, there's plenty of people that have pointed out that the Democratic Party is, you know, basically the sort of agglomerate, not agglomeration, but the sort of, um, you know, aggregation of, of several different party formations that would be probably separated in a parliamentary system, uh, you know, a, a proportional representation system. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of different ways that you could schematize that. Um, but, you know, it's everything from, um, you know, identity, there would be a co- probably a couple of identity uh, based uh, party formations. There would probably be sort of like a relatively old school, sort of like New Deal laborish, you know, party. There would probably be a kind of like a center right or center left to like liberal party, um, you know, which would be more or less, um, you know, the sort of like DLC types. Uh, you would even you would have like a I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how you, I mean. So, yeah. So there's at least five or six different um, groups that you could think of as probably being distinct parties if you didn't have the discipline of the sort of first past the post presidential system um, that you could think of in different ways. But um, but I think in our case, you know, we're still stuck with the reality of our electoral system. And, you know, unfortunately, um, thinking in terms of where we go from here, um, you know, can only really be done by thinking about um, the Democratic Party as it is, rather than, you know, thinking about, you know, what it would be like if we had uh, some sort of alternative system. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be good if we could sort of change our electoral system, but, you know, that would be basically impossible to do without um, first having a really, really strong um, left-wing party that, uh, you know, to get into power and force those things to happen. So it's a major chicken or the egg problem. I'm not sure if I answered the question very well there. So I apologize if I got off track. No, yo, you did. And I just, I'll say this and, I'll, and then I'll, I'll uh, release the mic. Uh, but, but it's, yeah, I mean, I think that what you've just mentioned, is like to a political scientist, it's like, well, obviously, right? Like, of course, like the Democratic Party is this complex coalition. To, to, to some of our critics who may be listening in right now, at least I hope they are. I hope I hope the left has oh, right, become right, such right, a right. segmented echo chamber, such that people you know people don't listen to podcasts with whom they they sometimes disagree anymore. I hope there are people out there with whom we we disagree. We can have some generative debates, but yeah. So the story on the left goes that the Democratic Party is a monolith, and that that working inside of it, or around it, or near it, or within smelling distance, is uh, inherently is inherent folly because of the fact that it, of its monolithic sort of arranger that's sort of what, what i was trying to get you to sort of right right yeah that's clearly down. that's clearly wrong and you know and i've i've gotten to the point where i'm kind of hoping that if we just don't talk about that anymore that like those people will just sort of go away um because they've started to <laughs> and you know there, there's a lot of people that have those views that i respect um and i've learned a lot from historically but we've just made so much progress moving away from sort of these dogmas about this sort of fundamental and you know transhistorical you know, ontology of the Democratic Party uh, that I'm hoping that if, you know, everybody's sort of uh, quietly moving in a more pragmatic direction that, you know, we just won't have to have those sorts of uh, discussions, which were basically resolved, you know, many decades ago. 
in reality. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so speaking about sort of the delicate coalition that exists even within the Democratic Party, one of the uh, things that I love about your piece is that you really break down uh, the base of the coalitional strategy as it currently exists. Um, so you talk about, you know, you use kind of the Congressional Progressive Caucus as metonymic with the coalitional strategy, at least currently. And, you know, they're primarily favored in well-educated districts, um, uh, or at least have, have a higher degree of favorability in middle for middle-class voters. And... Um, do less well in non-college educated white districts, but those districts account for 40% of congressional districts. So I guess my question is, sort of, what's the base of this coalitional strategy? What's its potential? Like, can't how far can we even go with the the tack? And um, sort of, what are the things that they can gain? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and uh, I love the use of metonymic there. Um, that's uh, very classy. Um, so, Did you notice too? I, I, I noticed. That was nice. I was like, wait, I'm an English. I used to be an English major. I remember. <laughs> I, what's a synecdoche? What's a metonym? Oh, I can't remember the difference. Um, anyway, uh, tangent over. Um, Brought to mind so, Philip Seymour Hoffman just now. This is just going to be one long tangent. That's a great movie. Um, Fucking amazing movie. Can we talk about Schenectady, uh, New York? Oh, my New York? gosh. I, I didn't know how to say Schenectady at the time. And I was like, Me neither. Uh, I've mostly rates, watched it drunk, so I was thought of Cynic Dope for the longest time. Ben, have you ever seen <laughs> Schenectady, New York? Oh, no. it's fantastic. You get to see a burning house. Uh, oh, it's crazy. So so also, Schenectady... Schenectady was a great socialist stronghold of the Socialist Party of America, you know, in the teens. So there's a nice sort of tie-in to socialism in that movie as well. I didn't know that, but it's the kind of town where you think that that kind of thing might happen, that kind of Midwestern. They had a socialist mayor uh, for for a couple of terms. The Great Lakes Socialists. That was intentional. Uh, Yeah, sorry. Oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) Philip Seymour Hoffman was a great uh, socialist. Hopefully. I'd like to hope that he was. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the coalitional strategy, you know, I think for people that are like in the Bernie bubble, and I myself was in the Bernie bubble for a few months earlier this year, when, you know, I genuinely like, had hope, you know, for a little while. And that's I haven't had hope for a little while since about the first week of Occupy when I was in Philadelphia, where like, I was like, damn, this is pretty cool. And then I totally went back to being a pessimist like a week later. And earlier this year with Bernie Sanders, I had like genuine hope for, for like a couple of months, which is amazing. Um, but you're I ready to love again. Were, you let your, you let your walls down. You're ready to accept love right, right. for the first time. Still recovering. <laughs> but I think that, you know, basically, even though there's a lot of people that feel like, oh my gosh, Sanders has, uh, you know, the end of the campaign has made us all sort of disappointed and feel like, you know, there's a crisis of the left and we don't know where to go from here. Um, I don't think any of that's, really true. I think we're actually at an amazingly uh, positive point, at least comparatively speaking, if not in sort of absolute terms. And we've made incredible progress and we have a lot of progress to go. However, we have not offered a theory of the case for how a standard style, PSA style politics can actually win power or at least some significant amount of power beyond a few city council seats 
for like, you know, uh, having one of our members that's loosely associated with us, like happen to make it into Congress, right? We don't have a theory of the case. The coalitional strategy, the rest of the progressives in, in U.S. politics, they do have a strategy. They have a couple of different related ones, but they have a strategy that's clear and that makes sense and that, you know, is probably doable. And so one version of that strategy is, OK, look, white working class voters, however we want to define that, you know, white, you know, non-college educated people in sort of rural and suburban places, um, they are a constituency that, you know, some people in the Democratic Party have been trying to get back into the fold after losing that group consistently since the 1960s. You know, uh, there were a bunch of people in the sort of Democratic Party that tried to do this in 2018, you know, uh, in a bunch of congressional races, uh, you know, putting like blue dog candidates who were, you know, Marine Corps pilots or whatever they were, you know, to try to knock off some of these people. And that failed. And the reality is that white working class voters just happen to be the hardest voters for Democrats to get in the entire electorate. And so why the F are we focusing on these people now when there's all of these other people uh, that could build a constituency for democratic politics that could make us uh, basically, you know, have control of the count of what uh, the house of representatives indefinitely. And that in, you know, increasingly could probably make the white house, uh, you know, inevitably democratic as sort of demographic changes continue in certain purple states. And so we have a coalition of um, working class people of color in big cities, essentially, and in some suburban places, combined with very, you know, wealthy uh, and sort of middle class, highly educated, uh, you know, professionals, uh, sort of uh, tech people, uh, that kind of group of people. Um, who together are extremely progressive, uh, you know, even on public opinion polls, like the, the, you know, the professional middle class that are professional managerial class, depending on how you want to phrase it. Um, these are people that hold very progressive views, not just on cultural issues, but also on economic issues that are very interested in like having unions uh, have more uh, rights. They're very interested in, you know, having uh, a jobs program. They're very interested in having some sort of universal um, met, you know, uh, government provided health insurance. And so the, com the combination of these sort of, uh, urban working class people with sort of, you know, professional, uh, you know, well-educated middle-class liberals basically is a majority coalition in, you know, uh, probably 23, 24 states in this country, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more depending on the year is a majority coalition in probably more than half of the congressional districts in this country. Uh, and so why the hell um, are we not going to go down the strategy of trying to build a coalition of those groups that is here, is actually in existence right now and are very pro-favorable to the Democratic Party and can deliver us real victories and can probably you know, get a large plurality of progressive, of genuine progressives in the House who can be that block of genuine progressives that are pushing the mainstream of the party to the left, you know, to help us ensure that we can get aspects of a Green New Deal, that we can get aspects of, you know, that we can get some version of Medicare for all, that we can get better protections for workers, et cetera. This is the same kind of group that used to be, you know, the CIO pack in the 1930s and 40s, the same kind of group that used to be the Democratic Study Group, which was the influential progressive group that brought you basically civil rights 
uh, legislation, the 1957 Civil Rights Act that brought you basically the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was a minority group of Democrats within a broader Democratic coalition that when the electoral map was sufficiently, you know, uh, conducive to mainstream Democrats promoting some kind of progressive legislation, which, by the way, the current situation is probably likely to be more like that than any conjuncture we've seen since at least the 1960s, given the depths of the economic crisis that we're experiencing and will continue to experience. So why the hell do you think it makes more sense to go after, you know, white working class folks? And not only that, white working class folks who don't vote. I've been trying to get Waleed Shahid on the show for over a year and a half. And, but I don't need who needs him anymore because you just made the case. Uh, that right. He, so that's the that's the coalition <laughs> case. And we as the Sanders <laughs> side, we need to take that very seriously. And we don't just need to take it seriously in a sense of saying, mm-hmm. like, oh, let's just like be polemicist and like like take it down, you know, right. uh, as much as we can and, uh, you know, try to uh, debunk it they have a theory of the case as you as you mentioned like eric levitz will lead shaheed as much as i hate to fucking say it on this particular show sean mcelwee they have a theory of the case of course it's a theory but it is it's a a little bit more based on sort of like better educated sort of like conservative suburban women at least as far as i can tell from what i've read so like his is a little bit different, but they're pretty closely related. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so that's what I'm interested in talking about with the Sanders people and with Democratic Socialists. What do we have to say to that? Okay. So I, I'm going to push back. Yeah. So one of the things you say in your piece is that we're unlikely to win the Senate with that strategy. So if we can't win the Senate, how can we get Medicare for all? Um, like, the idea that these uh, politicians can actually get a progressive, put a progressive agenda forward is relatively meaningless if they don't actually have the political power to be able to enact that policy agenda. And I guess the other thing that I'm thinking about is for an issue like Medicare for all, we could we could entertain a kind of cross class coalition with those well educated uh, middle class voters that really like you know the CPC. But what about a much more radical redistributive program? So so I, I'd love I'd love to hear your thoughts on those two issues. Yeah, I mean that's the problem with the coalitional strategy, right? Is that not only I mean maybe in a decade or two. Maybe in a generation, you know, we'll continue to see demographic changes in enough purple states that, right. you know, they can win. The Democrats can just have a lock in the Senate. Um, if we're going to be fair that. to them, I think that's what they would argue. I do. I think. Right. I mean, and, and correct me if you if, if we had Eric Levitz on, if we had Willie Cheat, if we had these other guys, um, I think they would suggest that these are the equivalent. That strategy is the equivalent of what we would call structural reforms, non-reformist reforms, and remaking the electorate in such a way that taking this, taking on the Senate in 10, 10 years on uh, might be more possible. Now, that's, of course, the hypothesis that <laughs> remains to be proven in a variety of ways. That it should be challenges. I mean, I, I would join Brianna in that challenge. But what, what do you think they would say? Right. So I think that is what they would say in part. Um, 
And I think, well, before I say what they would say, let's like, let's say like what uh, a little bit more of like, you know, how we confrontationalists uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of respond to what the amazing case against us that I just made. Um, so I think that in addition to the, you know, the, the Senate issue, um, you also have the issue of even if you can win the Senate, how are you going to win the Senate? Uh, what, what are, who are the Democrats that you're getting into the Senate, right? So like the, the coalitional strategy, uh, you know, barring some longer term generational demographic changes, which, you know, could happen, but, you know, uh, that's a long ways down the road. Um, if you, even if they get, you know, 52, 53 senators, uh, at least three or four of those senators are going to be, you know, pretty conservative senators who are willing to break from the Democratic coalition on important issues, just like this is, among other reasons, this is why we never, this is why, you know, Obamacare ended up being so shitty, uh, you know, compared to what it could have been, because you had the, like, people like Joe Lieberman, uh, you know, who are ostensibly in the Democratic coalition who were just not willing to go along with, you know, the public option, right? And so this is the same problem that you would see if the Democrats uh, were to win the Senate uh, right now, uh, or in 2020, that you'd have the Joe Manchins, you'd have the Kristen Sinemas, you'd have uh, the John Testers, you'd have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You'd have at least four or five um, who would never vote for Medicare for all, who would never vote for, you know, some of the more robust progressive things that, that we want to see. Um, so that's real. And also state houses are, are such an important um arena of struggle as well. And Democrats are just giving up on so many uh, states where, uh, you know, very important state level changes have been enacted by Republicans, and we're just not competing there at all. So we need to find a way uh, to not just win a majority of the Senate, but also win in a way that allows us to overcome the effective veto power of some of these pretty conservative Democrats. So like, even if you got rid of the filibuster, you know, and you only needed 50 to pass legislation, you would still have this problem of these sort of centrist Democrats who have to, you know, be centrist Democrats in order to win in the centrist states in which they run, right? And so the confrontational strategy would suggest that, okay, look, um, it's, a, it's a long shot for sure, but, you know, we see a real opportunity here. We see a generational you know, at, at what, you know, at a secular decline in the legitimacy of the Democratic Party among working class voters, at least some, um, or at least the secular decline in, in the legitimacy of the, the establishment of the Democratic Party, if not the identity of the Democratic Party itself, which is a separate question we could talk about. Um, and we see, you know, declining living standards among working class people. And we see, you know, the rise of Bernie Sanders and even Elizabeth Warren, like progressive people, like within the sort of left world, uh, who are showing the opportunities that we have to present a bold social democratic alternative. And if we can run with that and present a bold social democratic alternative in red and purple states, uh, you know, that's able to balance um, a range of other campaign issues that could potentially be electorally uh, problematic in those places, you know, we can actually be competitive in red and purple districts in a way that, you know, traditional progressives in the Democratic Party cannot be. And so that's the gamble that the confrontationalists have. And then the coalitionists would come back and say, okay, cool, but, you know, this hasn't worked anywhere yet. And like, there's basically no examples of you uh, being successful in red and purple states. 
Um, and so that's, you know, a huge problem for our side. And I think um, that's the thing that we all need to be talking more about, re-examining the places where Sanders uh, did well um, in surprising places in 2020 and why he did well in surprising places in 2020, systematically going through all of the Sanders-style candidates, looking at the types of platforms that, that different successful and failed you know, sort of Sanders-style candidates have used and the different campaign strategies that they've used, the different types of coalitions that they've tried to build in different places, and actually trying to build a theory of the case based on sort of the hundreds of empirical examples that we now have of Sanders-style progressives running for office at the national, state, and local levels over the past four years, and also going historically back to, you know, sort of analogous cases and trying to tease these issues out more. And I basically think that right now we're just at the beginning of that discussion, but that is essentially the research project of the Sanders left, and it should be for the next, you know, several years until we can come up with a more convincing theory of the case. Yeah, I thought that was a really helpful uh, clarification of that. It almost seems like, you know, Jared, your position is that the coalitional strategy in a kind of like rational choice model uh, makes sense because it's like expedient. Um, It's, you know, the uh, it's a kind of the low hanging fruit. Um, Currently, it's kind of it recognizes the power that we have currently. The confrontational strategy requires that we build power. So what is, um, what do you think that that base is going to look like? And how do you think we're going to get there in terms of appealing to that base and being able to actually um, get get those votes? I mean, I think that the base is going to be, you know, the working class uh, broadly defined in both rural and suburban and uh, urban areas. And that's going to be a multiracial working class that's unified on the basis of, um, you know, different types of issues, depending on, you know, the, you know, that there's different constituencies in the, in the Democratic Party. And, you know, there's lots of different issues that are important to those different constituencies, which will, you know, be important in any electoral campaign. But that said, the sort of overarching um, narrative of, of a successful strategy that could actually be successful across all of the broad working class would be one that's more more or less like that of Sanders, right? Um, that's based on, you know, issues that disproportionately, uh, you know, that if, if enacted like Medicare for all, like, you know, Green New Deal, et cetera, would disproportionately affect uh, positively, you know, you know uh, sort of communities of color and historically marginalized communities, but which... Uh, all sectors of the sort of broad working class have a material stake in and would benefit from um, in a dramatic way. So that would basically be the the way to that would be what the coalition would look like and how we get there. You know, that's something that we need to think more about um, sort of electoral strategy based on an inductive process of going through all of the experiences that we've seen so far and trying to actually sort of work out. Um, you know, what, what, what have been the most successful experiments? And then let's iterate that next time and keep trying this. And there just simply isn't a magic bullet. Like we, we just need to keep working on it. We have an intuition that there's these sort of like longer tectonic changes happening in the electorate 
that are pro us, right? Like, like I just mentioned, like the working class living standards declining, like the Democratic Party unable over time, over decades to actually do the things that working class people need them to do, the ordinary people need them to do. Um, but there's this pretty big disconnect between those tectonic changes that are happening and that could pay dividends in the long term and the sort of like short term, uh, how do we uh, capitalize on those changes? And that's what I don't, we just have to be honest, we don't know the answer to, the, to those questions yet. And that's why we need to be much more focused on uh, studying what's happened so far, you know, running, you know, working class candidates as much as possible who look like and sound like and talk like and have the same material interests of the communities that they're, uh, you know, hoping to represent and, you know, keep iterating this process for a few election cycles and see what we come up with. I mean, that's the that's the solution. I mean, it's not uh, very glamorous. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm also curious about uh, the non-electoral side of things and how that relates to this, because you talk about this a little bit at the beginning of the essay, um, that there's a kind of not totally unreasonable critique that you that you know that somebody could make here uh, that says that um, successful socialist electoral movements tend to come you know tend to have a base of um, of you know organized labor at the you know most obviously right and, and active social movements uh, that they that they build off of that you know that in some ways the kind of Sanders gamble right, you know, was, was that we could do things the other way around and that we could start yeah. electorally and use that to activate all of that grassroots stuff and labor and elsewhere that would be necessary in order to actually push through the agenda, uh, the social democratic agenda against the obvious intense opposition to capital that any attempt to carry that out would get. Um, but what I guess, I guess my first question is what would you say to to somebody who just says, hey, what like um, we tried that, right? And we were beaten back in no small part because because of our weakness, you know, at the at the base that, you know, that uh, that's more uh, union strength, for example, would have gone a long way, you know, in, in the primaries. So going forward, we just shouldn't be focused like, you know, even if we don't become abstentionists or, you know, third party weirdos or whatever, we just shouldn't be focused on um on, on electoralism is our main thing right our main thing right now should be building up um you know labor strength and 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 reform efforts in unions and attempts to you know get the left into you know union leadership positions maybe some sort of strategy along those lines and then electoral possibilities can come out of that yeah, yeah i mean i think that there's a lot to be said for that um as i mentioned in the piece and I think that clearly progressive electoral organizing and uh, important uh, uprisings and um, mobilizations uh, in the labor movements and in other social movements as well can clearly play a symbiotic relationship with electoral organizing. Yeah, we, as we've seen in you know cases like West Virginia or Chicago, I mean, there's a lot of other cases where important union organizing clearly played a role in stimulating the rise of you know, left-wing electoral candidates, and then there's sort of a virtuous circle there. And historically, this has been the case too. So I am not in any way trying to uh, say that that's not an important argument. However, I looking his and I, 
and I could be wrong, but I mean, my reading of you know historical moments that I think are similar to the one that we could be in right now, that is to say, potentially, um, you know, epoch-defining, you know, critical historical junctures that sort of make the rules of the political game slightly more flexible, you know, given the sort of great economic crisis that we're facing. And when we've seen crises like this before, um, it really wasn't the organized labor movement that ended up um, being the primary impetus for uh, the mass mobilization of the working class. Um, I mean, not directly anyway. Um, so, you know, getting the sort of causal logic here is really complicated. And there's like millions of books that have been written about uh, all these things like in the New Deal. But basically, uh, my feeling is that th the labor movement is so weak and that the organized uh, sort of working class uh, segments of this country are so weak that a gradualist step-by-step -step approach is valiant and noble, but it's nowhere up to the challenge of actually building the infrastructure needed to wage a majoritarian electoral struggle in this country. I mean, if you look at the, the periods of union of union membership surges and of surges in strike activity, they happen not in gradual ways, but they happen in flashes, right? I mean, and they happen in spikes. Uh, there's a great labor historian, Richard Friedman, that wrote a paper about this in the late 90s where, you can, where he graphs out, like, there's just a few moments of, of massive growth in the labor movement, right? Historically in the 1920s and, or in the, in, the, in the 20th century. And they're, you know, in the 1930s, well, you know, FDR is elected and then um, he started, he, you know, gets the first New Deal passed because he has this very momentary fleeting coalition uh, you know, in Congress that's able to get the National Industrial Relations Act passed, the Agriculture Adjustment Act, set of the Civilian Conservation Corps, and also Section, you know, 7A of the National Industrial Relations Act, which says that, you know, in the famous words of John Lewis, the president of the United Mine Workers, you know, President Roosevelt wants you to join a union, right? And it was that impetus from the states that actually mobilized and, you know, sparked the imagination of workers all around the country. They didn't yeah, actually and, gain institutionally from that, but they gained uh, sort of the sense that we can do this. We have institutional backing. And also this, the, 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 the New Deal itself provided people a sense that the state can give them things and that it's worth fighting on the terrain of the state. And so millions and millions of people, disillusioned working class people, became mobilized because of their increased expectations and increased hopes from the experience of the sort of early days of the New Deal. And I basically think that something like that uh, is necessary today in order to basically stimulate and, you know, spark the imagination of millions of people in this country who think that the state can't give them anything, that the government sucks. We need something analogous to that today in order to create the kinds of mobilizations that could, you know, create a, a revitalized labor movement and a revitalized left electoral movement. I, and, and I think that that's the conversation that we basically need to be having. And, you know, having a gradual, you know, sort of step-by-step -step approach of union organizing over decades, um, you know, that's very important work and we shouldn't denigrate it. But I don't think that that's what's going to be the key to actually taking us to the level of, you know, building a real social democratic party in this country, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, although that does that does bring us to to the other question, which kind of comes from the opposite end 
Uh, because, yeah, when you think back to the New Deal stuff, to the way that even some pretty ambiguous support from, uh, from the president could, uh, could have that huge galvanizing effect, uh, that, you know, that's something that was like actually like a pretty toothless provision could at least be used by CIO organizers to say, oh, hey, the president wants you to join a union and, right. and uh, get a lot of people to do that. And so then you start thinking about, all right, if, if, the, uh, if the birthday boy, Bernie Sanders, had been elected president, um, how much more of that could have happened? Because you wouldn't have had somebody who was president who was under certain circumstances willing to enter into a certain kind of alliance with militant unions, but in a very conflicted way, right? Like FDR, you would have had somebody who was like strongly ideologically committed to that. You know, remember when... Uh, Barack Obama in 2008 lied and said that he was going to uh, put on a comfortable pair of shoes and walk the picket yeah. lines yeah. Uh, with striking workers as president, right? You know, that Bernie would have actually done that, right? So, and, and I can totally see it having that galvanizing effect. And that was always that uh, Bernie gamble that you could do things the other way around, have the, um, the high-level electoral wins translate into... Um, into worker organizing to grassroots instead of uh, vice versa, like usual. Uh, but I, I guess my what I do wonder about is what that means for us now, because it's a little easier to see how the process could play out in that direction if we could actually win the presidency, uh, and a little bit harder to see how some of that stuff works if we're talking about some much more piecemeal, much more low-level in a way of, of, uh, of building up, right? That like, uh, that rather than having a Sanders administration, which would then, I mean, obviously there are a lot of optimistic assumptions built into this, but you can kind of see how it all work, which would then be able to both be a great platform for primary and uncooperative Democrats and a great platform for promoting uh, union organizing at the base. Uh, if what we're basically talking about is, you know, trying to win, you know, congressional races, maybe um, trying to, you know, I mean, I understand this confrontational strategy that you're talking about isn't just, um, you know, isn't just our revolution, but more so that, you know, that there's, there's an element of, of building up uh, organization uh, to hold, uh, to hold socialist elected officials accountable. Uh, but I, I, I do I guess one way of asking this would just be uh, how pessimistic should we be given that we've no longer got within our short-term sights the idea of having a Bernie-like figure at the top who could actually be elected president and do this kind of top-down electoral strategy. But now it looks like we'd be looking at lower-level races and hoping for something happening from the bottom up. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's put a pin in that question. We're, I think that's a, that's a perfectly good transition to take us to the B side. You know, as I think Jared, you've you've laid a, a out a really persuasive case for this kind of, um, you know, at least uh, schematically, uh, you know, um, schematically arranged uh, dichotomous uh, approach to uh, politics. 
uh, was something, Ben, I mean, your point's well taken for me. I mean, and, and if people have listened to DPS for longer than, you know, this month, they'll know that in January, February, I took up this question, this distinction between progressivism versus democratic socialism very in earnest, right? I had on Levitz, Eric Levitz, and I had on a bunch of people to kind of try to articulate and make that progressive case. Uh, one of my, you know, good friends and, and recent and, and uh, perennial contributors to DPS, uh, Dan Marins, is a guy who comes on all the time and himself, although himself very sympathetic to the democratic socialist uh, case, always tries to argue that, right, I mean, this we do not yet have a comprehensive, persuasive theory of the case when it comes to our mode of political transition. It's something that we need to, to be um, uh, cognizant of. Let's take that over to the B side. I think that we have, we've made a case for these two uh, positions, and we're going to further problematize, as the uh, stuffy academics would say, uh, and add complexity uh, to this theoretical, strategic, and historical question as we go. And so uh, for those of you who are, uh, your interest has peaked, you are properly thirsted, thirsty, thirsted for more knowledge, uh, you're going to have to head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a patron today at a level at which you are comfortable. Uh, we absolutely cannot do this without the generous support of our patrons. Uh, we rely on you to continue bringing uh, the solid political, you know, strategic, historical, theoretical uh, socialist content uh, into your ears each week. Um, you know, it's, uh, we're building institutions here, folks, and whatever we're building towards, which is uh, going to be the result of a process of a number of debates, including most certainly the one we're having today, uh, whatever we're building, we're going to need institutions to deliver us. And so, you know, we do rely on you, despite the fact that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders is no longer asking you for your, you know, monthly donations. Uh, maybe you can siphon those donations over to DPS and other worthwhile outlets uh, that are pushing this agenda. So that, again, that's patreon.com slash deadpundits. And uh, we'll see the patrons over there on the B side. And to the rest of you, we'll see you next week on the A side. Jared Abbott, as always, thanks so much for joining us, my man. Thank you very much. Great talking. Yeah. See you on the B side. <laughs>